Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. I'd been the straight-A student, and I'd always loved, I'd been a voracious reader. I'd love knowledge and information. And by the end of my drinking, I'd lost the cognitive ability to understand what I was reading. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, I am here with Hillary Phelps. Hillary was an overachiever from the beginning. She was a straight A student and the fastest swimmer in the country for her age group until the age of 14 when she took her first sip of alcohol. From that moment, she was hooked and spent the next 15 years drinking, feeling empty, lost, and hopeless. At 29, Hillary checked herself into rehab for substance use disorder. It wasn't just about putting down the drink, but about changing people, places, and things in her life that ultimately caused her to use in the first place. Hillary kept her recovery and sobriety quiet until recently when she celebrated 15 years of continuous sobriety in June of 2022. It was then she realized we're only as sick as our secrets and decided to share her story. It was then she realized her mission and purpose wasn't to stay quiet, but to help those healing in private by sharing her recovery and healing journey out loud. Hillary is a speaker, an addiction recovery advocate, writer, and holistic wellness coach. Her mission and purpose is to help other women find their voice and heal from anything that is holding them back from finding their purpose. I had such a blast talking to Hillary She's amazing, and her story is so important because it underlines this fact that just because you have a job, just because you're drinking wine, just because you've run an Ironman, just because you're healthy, just because, just because, just because, those things don't mean that you aren't struggling with some sort of alcohol problem, and Hillary is a perfect example of that. Her achievement was incredible, but obviously overshadowed by that of her siblings, including her brother, Michael. I can't imagine what it felt like, but what I know is that Hillary has acquired the skills to handle anything that comes at her. And you'll hear that in her story. I'm so grateful that she started sharing that and recovering out loud. I hope you enjoy her as much as I did. So without further ado, I give you Hillary Phelps. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm very, very excited to share your story with the world. I know that you've been out there talking about it. And we in the recovering community and those of us fighting the war on stigma uh, very much appreciate that you're out there talking about this because so many amazing people are sober a long time and they're afraid to talk about it. Thank you. Yes. I think having as many voices as possible out there talking about it is so powerful because we're going to hear something in everybody's story that's different and it's going to resonate with different people. And the more people that feel comfortable enough sharing their story and helping you know other people who are recovering or maybe trying to get sober in the shadows feel comfortable with, with recovering. What was your childhood like? What Talk me through when alcohol and, you know, what was appealing for you? You know, growing up, I say it was pretty normal. I I was a straight A student. I was the fastest swimmer in the country when I was 11 and 12. And so on the outside, I had all of the things that looked really good somewhere you know, around the age of 13, 14, I think I just started feeling a little bit of depression and not knowing, you know, always being such a perfectionist and type A. And I just tried really hard to be really good at everything I did. And so swimming started to start to slip a little bit. My grades started to slip. And so when I found drinking, it was kind of an answer to silencing those voices that started to say, you're not good enough, you know, because there was somewhere inside of me that said, you're just not good enough the way you are. And I never thought I was pretty enough or fast enough or smart enough. And that informed my little team teenage mind that I just wasn't good at all. When I found alcohol, it gave me that relief I was looking for from those negative voices. 
Yeah. Yeah. So did your mom put you both in swimming thinking that, you know, like this would just be great? I'm thinking to myself, like if I have a sibling and I'm a perfectionist, which I am, I'm the oldest of three girls. We all had different things. Like I was the academic. Uh, one of my sisters is the athlete. The other is an artist. And like quite literally one went to junior Olympics. The other one went to Rhode Island School of Design. So like we never competed <laughs> in the same arena, We, you know, and, and uh, I'm just thinking like, if I'm the fastest in the country and I'm like, I'm, I'm being told I'm not good enough. And then I have this brother that goes off and does these things. I would feel the need to like take him down a notch on everything else. <laughs> well, we also have a sister and my sister was third in the world and she was 14 or sister. So my parents just put me in swimming because it was what you did in the summer. It's just a summer league thing and it was fun and it, you know, got us out and around our friends. And so when I started swimming, I wanted the big trophy. Like that's kind of the joke because I got the third place trophy and I wanted the big trophy. And so my mom, my parents were kind of like, well, you have to do year round swimming if that's what you want to do, because that's what those kids do. I'm like, great, sign me up. My sister was kind of like, eh, I'm not that interested. My mom's like, well, we're taking Hillary. So, you know, you, you have to do it too. And so my sister started to do it. And then my sister surpassed me at being third in the world at 14. And then my brother came in and he was like, I don't want to get my face wet. <laughs> and right. So when he was five and so they flipped him over on his back and he started learning backstroke first. And yet he's like the greatest He's the greatest swimmer of all time. So I laughed because my enthusiasm was up to here and my ability was here and we kind of flipped. But, you know, I had a division one. I had a full scholarship to swim division one. I went to University of Richmond and I'm the least successful in my family <laughs> because we all swam. So it's kind of fun. I mean, it's I think it's funny. You know, my mom's like, you're very successful. I'm like, I know it's just kind of funny. Like in any other family, it wouldn't be. Yeah, what? That's such bullshit. Couldn't they have done some other sport? I mean, <sighs> and the, yes. And for, the, you know, for the alcoholic perfectionist. <laughs> just a nightmare. And you know, it, it, the hardest was my sister because she was two years younger and she started to pass me. But you know, my sister also, and both my sister and brother gave up everything to to swim where I was like, oh, I want to go to the parties. You know, I want to go to the dances. I want to go to the games and the lacrosse games because I grew up in Baltimore. I want to do these things. And they were willing to sacrifice those things for their sport where I was like, I want to drink and I want to smoke pot and I want to party in a field with my friends, so, you know. I didn't have that same, but I was really good at drinking. So yeah, yeah, that's where I excelled. Like, definitely a win. You were very successful and, you know, at drinking so successful, you had to retire from like a career ending injury, basically. So early, it was yeah. early retirement. Yeah, it was an early retirement. I relate to that. Yeah, it's interesting. My I grew up in in the Bay Area, and my mom and sister ran track. And uh, my mom was masters and third in her age group, and my sister junior Olympics and all this. And so I was around a lot of athletes at Stanford who you know were training with them. And it was really interesting to me how a lot of the athletes who gave up ever like the child athletes who gave up everything they felt underdeveloped to me because they had given up a life it, they had get, literally like they had given up all of the like dating norms and the little things that if you spend enough time with them you're like oh, oh you never experienced that because you were doing these other things the ones who were covering up alcoholism and addiction you know addiction tendencies with the extreme sport life when the sport stopped or when they retired or when they you know, had an injury or whatever, that's when I saw so many of those athletes that gave their whole world to that and basically the obsession. When that went away, it was I've I've seen a lot of those athletes struggle with addiction because that sport was able to fill that hole. And then when it wasn't, they went to this other thing that maybe would have found them earlier. Mm -hmm. It's also the time, you know, I look back on, on athletics and in college, you're kind of told where to go, when to, you know, when to show up, what to do all the time. And then I graduated from college. I'm like, nobody's telling me what to do, where to go. So I'm going to fill my time with exactly. And you start filling it with things like drinking and you know, going out every night and using drugs. When did you, I always talk about how like we hire alcohol and drugs to do a job for us. Usually it's to make us more socially, a social lubricant. We hire it to help our anxiety. We hire it to do make us cool or dance better or whatever it is. And it works super well. It's awesome. And it's so much fun. And oh my gosh, we did, you know, and we have all these fun stories. And then eventually it, you know, really loses its steam and stops working for us. But we've hired it to do this job and it's a protected class and we can't fire it. The, <laughs> this is, this is by horrendous 
I work in HR analogy, okay? Just go with me. So, so, <laughs> so okay. So talk to me about what, like, when did you take your first drink and start that? And, and what was the progression like? Because it progresses. It was around 14 when I started. And, you know, looking back now through the lens of, you know, being in recovery for 16 years and having more age on my side um, and experience, I, I think I had a little bit of depression. And, you know, I remember going to my mom and saying, like, I think I'm struggling with this. And and I think, you know, I kind of want to see, can I see a therapist? But back then it wasn't a thing. And that's no fault of my parents. But, you know, seeing a therapist or getting help or talking about mental health was not what it is today. And so I think what it was is I was trying to cover up some of those feelings of lack of inadequacy. I was in high school. I didn't feel good enough. My swimming was starting to slip and I didn't I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the self-confidence to navigate that in any other way. And so when I found alcohol, it quieted that voice of you're not good enough and you're not funny and you're not smart and you nobody likes you and the cool kids think you're this, you know, cuz I was also very like studious and I say nerdy. I mean, I'll have to send you this picture. I used to wear these big Sally Jesse Raphael glasses and I had a short permed hair and I was so proud of it and I loved it. And then I got made fun of. And I remember that feeling of I'm allowing their voices to be louder than mine and I can still remember that moment and then finding alcohol, you know, all of these these things seemed to work. And they gave me that confidence because I never thought I was funny. Like my sister and my brother are way cooler than I am. They're funnier. They just have it where I'm like a little more nerdy and serious. And I can't tell a joke to save my life. Like my (laughs) 85-year-old grandmother, I can botch up a knock-knock joke. And she's like, seriously? Like she would get so frustrated. Like, can you just say it one more time? I want to, and now I'm just accepting it. I'm like, I either need to read it or I just need to hear them. I can't repeat them. It's like acceptance. But then I felt like that was part of like a flaw, you know, a character flaw. And so it worked. And so it started to work because I could just not care or I could be whoever it was that somebody wanted me to be based, you know, and that, that dance of, okay, who do you want me to be? I'm going to be that person. Then the next crowd. So I could fit in wherever, which is basically people pleasing now, (laughs) what I've learned. Codependence and people pleasing, and and it's you know, and it worked until I was 29. But I was the blackout, you know, I was a blackout drinker and I was a wine drinker, and so there weren't a lot of people that I saw. The media shows people like Meg Ryan and When a Man Loves a Woman and Nicolas Cage and Leaving Las Vegas as the depiction of alcoholic and an addict. And so I'm like, well, I'm not them because I'm drinking wine because wine's fancy, and you know, I'm not drinking out of a brown paper bag all the time. Sometimes I'm sneaking the drinks when I'm just looking. But for the most part, I'm pouring my wine in a glass. I mean, it could be this, right? Yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be it's, a mason jar. It's made it's, of glass. I'm still civil. Right. Yeah, it's a vase, but it's glass. So it's a glass, technically. I love that idea. I used to drink wine out of a bottle, and I used to put it in my closet, and I used to bring it to parties in high school because nobody else was drinking wine in high school. And so it was like a great, like they're not going to take my alcohol, but it feels like if you're going to be a normal drinker, wine is such this camouflage, but it eventually starts to get weird with it. Yeah, it's okay. It's acceptable. At the end of the day, when you're super stressed, you go home, you pour a glass of wine and you sit on the couch with a big furry blanket. This is going to make me feel better, right? And so drinking wine kept me out for a lot longer because I didn't think it was an issue, right? Because people with issues are the ones drinking things like martinis or out of the bag or... Or I was like, well, I'm not that bad. Thank goodness today so many people are talking about this. People look like me and people look like, and that's why telling their story or sharing these stories is so important because you can see someone and you're like, oh, I was a competitive athlete or, oh, I was really good at school too, you know, and, or I was, I'm just drinking wine or it informs, I think it's informing people that alcoholism, addiction, substance use disorder all looks the same. It just depends on how you feel, right? Because at, at the end of my drinking, I was emotionally distraught, spiritually banged. I felt like my soul had died. I can still feel it. I felt distressed all the time. I was sad all the time. Just looking for that alcohol to fill that space that nothing else could touch. Yeah. We have all these ideas about like what the alcoholic is. And that's why it is so important for for people to be out there telling their stories. I remember I was in a rehab and uh, I remember they're talking about like 
how they drank mimosas and so nobody in the morning and so nobody said anything. And I was like, what? There's an alcohol we're allowed to drink in the morning? Like there are all these rules that people make up like it's okay to drink a Bloody Mary or or a mimosa in the morning. Like that's how you get vodka into your system in the morning. That's okay. But if you drink straight vodka, not okay. And all these things. And I remember thinking like, oh, I just didn't know the rules. And what I have come to see is that so many people hide behind these wines acceptable or like they figure out I can have champagne at this time and I can I can look normal as long as I follow these set of rules which I did not know about then I can pretend that my drinking is okay and normal because it fits into this scenario but like you said people don't feel the way that we felt when they have a normal relationship with alcohol and I don't know about you, but I feel like so many people also attribute those feelings that are in part being caused by alcohol. They attribute them to other stressors in their life. Yes, alcohol is causing it, but they're like, yeah, but I have a really stressful job. And so like actually the alcohol is helping it when in reality it's making it worse. Did you experience any cognitive distortions where towards the end you're like, no, 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 it's not the alcohol. It's because, you know, my stupid brother is doing all this stuff and like making me feel bad or my, you know, my, my spouse or my, my job or whatever it is. Like, did you experience any of those? Two things came to mind when you said that. So I was, you know, at 25 when I was in college, I was like, oh, you know, my life is going to look perfect when, when I get married at 22, I have my baby at 24 and uh, my second at 25. And, you know, by 28, I'm finished. And by 30, I'm here. And so the idea of what I thought my life was going to look like or be like felt really stressful. I'm like, well, I haven't met my person yet. And I haven't, I don't have my kids in it. Like, timeline. It's it's not on the timeline. I'm not gonna be in my house by the time I'm 30. Like when you're talking about like just cognitive stuff, I was thinking about I actually lost my, you know, I'd been the straight A student I'd, and I'd always love, I'd been a voracious reader. I'd love knowledge and information. And by the end of my drinking career at 29, I'd lost the cognitive ability to understand what I was reading. I would, because I would take the subway or the metro to and from DC to where I was living outside the city and I would take a magazine. And so to prevent people, because I couldn't talk to people normally, like I'd be so drunk, I didn't want to have a conversation. So I'd pretend to read a magazine or pretend to read a book so people would leave me alone or you know, I wouldn't have to have a conversation. And when I started getting sober, I would do the same thing. And I realized my mind, like the connection wasn't there anymore. And that was terrifying for me because I was, I'd always prided myself on somebody that had been a knowledge gatherer, an information seeker, all these, and it stopped, you know, and I remember being like 12 steps was a part of my, is a part of my recovery, but was huge, you know, really huge in the beginning. I remember being in a meeting and reading and for the first time understanding it and being like, oh, it's coming back, you know, and how huge that was. I think those are things too, that we lose a lot of things, but for me, like that was also something that was so humbling. It doesn't just come back quickly. For me, it didn't just come back overnight, you know? And I think that's, people are like, oh, I put down the alcohol and now my, I thought my life was going to be perfect. I'd sleep well, my relationships would all come back, this, my reading, like all this stuff. And it's it's one of those things that, you know, takes time. And so someone explained this to a way that's people that don't have the brain disorder, right? Like it can have half half a glass of champagne and they're dopamine, they feel good. You know, it gives them a 10, bumps them up to a 10. But someone with brains like ours that have the addictive, think it's a gene, we take a sip and it's like a thousand dopamine. We're like, we want more of that. So we have more of it. And then at that point you can't stop, but the effects of it are so much greater and we want those effects. We want to keep going. We want to get more. And I can be that way now, whether it's a cookie or ice cream. And now I recognize it a little bit more and I'm not going to total a car or drain my bank account by eating another scoop of ice cream. And so it's a little bit less, but like I still have those, mm -hmm. you know, more is more and more is better. One is good, 10 is better. I think a, a lot of us don't have enough dopamine, right? We're dopamine deficient. And so we're, we're seeking that. And a lot of people who don't struggle with the, it's, it's a grouping of genes that, that create the substance use disorder. And the people who don't struggle with that the same way, they aren't as deficient. They're not desperate for the dopamine the same way. We are desperate for it when we find anything that makes us feel better because we're desperate to feel better. Ultimately, it's about feeling better. When we have this memory also of feeling better, we are trying to go back to that and achieve that. So it's this 
combination of kind of free-floating anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, right? We get like really stuck on something and we just, you know, that's that's all we can think about. And then, you know, a deficiency, we are trying to achieve homeostasis. We're just starting from a different place. You know, when I see people who are out on the street homeless, I was just in San Francisco and I see people out on the street homeless and just like the worst condition. I mean, just horrific. And I think to myself, I picture what that person used to be like and I picture all the things and how that person is likely seeking a state of being that they once experienced as feeling okay, that they've been chasing that for so long. And then you combine that with the fact that opiates or some of these drugs, like forget it. Anyone can be addicted. You know, if you take it enough, you're dependent on it. And then you add trauma and you add all these other things. And I know it sounds crazy and I know like many people wouldn't believe it, but I absolutely without a shadow of a doubt could be that person if I didn't recover. I, without a shadow of a doubt in my mind, because I am looking for, I, I require some sort of feeling of homeostasis and I will chase it through the gates of hell. I, I just, I've done it before. You know, when I look at groups of people who are doing that, that's what I see. I see just this horrendous, untreated thing that most people don't understand. That's a really powerful image. And I started to get a little emotional because you're right. You see people and you're 100% right. That could be me in a second. You know, last year my dad passed away unexpectedly and my dad was, I love my dad, my person. And that was the closest, you know, at 15 years, I was like, screw it. I couldn't hold any more grief and pain. I'd also just gone through a really traumatic divorce. I'd launched a business. Um, moved all of these things and four of the top five things in any person's life. Top five traumatic things happened to me in one year. And I was, thank God I was 15 years sober, you know, because in that moment I was like, forget it. I'm done. I don't care. I just need, like, this is too much for me to handle. I am like, I can't out yoga this, out breathe it, meditate it out of the way, run it out, eat ice cream over it. And sitting in that grief, I, it was, it's so it's still fresh. Like people say, 15 years, it doesn't matter. Like it is still there. And that's exactly where I went. If I go and I have that drink, it's not going to be one. It's not going to be two. There's a high probability I won't come back from this, which means I'll lose my child, which means I could total a car, which 100% means I would run out of all the money and sell my car because at some point you mess up enough or you, you know, enough people are finally like, boundaries. Like I can't do it. I can't help you anymore. And they start shutting you out. And at that point, I'm 100% homeless or, or ending back in those really bad relationships. It's wild to think about. And I totally get how it feels. I totally get how people could look at you or me and go, okay, sure. But I think when you get it, when you've been there, when you felt that feeling of like, no, I will, no, like I will burn this to the ground. I will sink this ship. I will do it. I will do it because there's the threshold of pain and there's a threshold of, you know, also for people like us who achievement, you get our self-esteem from achievement and, you know, this like type A thing. If we feel badly enough we're like, well, we're never coming back from this. This is so bad. It doesn't matter. And then it's like, I'm going to be the worst, worst I can be because if I can't be the best, best, I'm going to be the worst, worst. Even though it's been 16 years since my last drink, I can close my eyes and I can still tap into that loneliness that I felt and that scared, just sadness every single day. And that feeling of just hopeless. One of the moments when I tried to quit drinking or moderate my drinking, I was like, I'm only going to have one glass tonight. Because if I can just have one glass. Yeah. And like, let's be honest, I didn't really want to, but I didn't want to give yeah. it up. <laughs> we know how this goes. Yeah. And so I had one glass of wine. I'm laying in bed. The wine is still in the kitchen. You know, I'm like, nope, I'm going to do it. I made this promise to myself. I'm going to do it. And I remember laying in bed, feeling like my skin was burning, that I was being stabbed from the inside. My skin was just vibrating. My body was, just, and I remember being so anxious. Yeah. I got up and I drank a bottle of NyQuil, a full bottle of NyQuil. I'm like, it's not wine. <laughs> I love it. Right? Loopholes. Yes. We didn't drink alcohol, friends. Yeah. It's NyQuil. But those are the things, like those are the like the the things, right? Because we always make these promises. And I would make those promises to myself too. Like I'm only gonna drink on Friday and Saturday nights. Okay, well, maybe Thursday night because it's happy hour. 
well, Sunday night because football's on or, you know, and it keeps like moving the line and I would just keep taking those things. Well, I'm only going to drink at home. Well, when I drink at home, I, I black out. So I'm going to be able to monitor it and you know manage it more if I drink. Well, then I drink and drive. I mean, it's like all of these things to try to negotiate. Yeah. You know, oh, maybe if I do drugs, I can... Right. Sober up to drink, to drive home yes. long enough and then go home and drink. And like, or, oh my gosh, I have to leave the bar now because I can hit the liquor store on the way home before it closes. And then I'm fully blacked out by the time I get home. Like the thought process that goes, right? We're really good at clean, you know, creating structure and time. Like we're, it was just being utilized in an unproductive and unhealthy way, right? Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hey, everybody, just wanted to jump in here and let you know about Lion Rock Recovery's specialized program for nurses who are struggling with alcohol use or substance use disorder or are just sober curious. We currently have a specialized program that works with nurses' trauma, nurses' scheduling, and even the importance of anonymity. For more information, go to lionrockrecovery.com, check out programs, specialized recovery programs, and there you will find our nurses program. You can also go to lionrockrecovery.com and chat with us or call us at 800-258-6550 to find out more. So I, you'll appreciate this. So I, when I started using IV drugs, I was like, well, I'm not going to share need. I'm not going to be like those people and share, you know, like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it differently, friends. So I took all of my syringes and wrote my first and last name on them because that would stop. You are the oldest or you are the oldest. Yeah. Like the label that our mom put in our shirts. And my first name wasn't enough. So I had to write my last name on them. So I wrote my first and last name on them. And I also, as though that would stop any junkie from using them is also hilarious. And of course, when I had an interaction with law enforcement and they discovered this and I was telling them, oh, I don't know how any of the, I don't know what any of this stuff is, blah, 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 blah. And they open it up and everything has my name on it. Labeled. Um, it's labeled. Yep. That's great. And, but it's like, we have these really great ideas about how we're going to manage this. And it reminds, it's like the, um, I don't remember what they're called, but it's like those things where you squeeze them. You, you know, you used to get them in like your stocking or like Easter or whatever, like water weenies, water weenies. Yeah. So water weenies, you squeeze it. And it's like, it's like the more you squeeze it, the crazier that thing goes, it starts coming out all which ways and you, and then you drop it. And, I feel like alcoholism feels like that. It's like the harder you squeeze, the harder you try to control it, the more rules you make for yourself. I got to the point where like it was easier and better for everyone if I didn't try to control it. Like the trying to control it almost made it worse. And when I just like allowed myself to do it, I felt like I had less destruction because I wasn't trying to work my way around it. I just was like, this is what it is. Mm. So what I thought of when you said that, like kind of making those negotiations with ourselves, right? Like, okay, well, I'm only going to do this or I'm going to do this. And I'll do that sometimes now. Like, well, I'm going to get up early tomorrow morning and work out, right? And all of these things, like whether it's quitting drinking or you know, getting up and working out, we're the only ones that make these declarations to ourselves. My partner doesn't, you know, he's not going to care if I get up and work out in the morning or my son's not going to be mad if I eat an extra scoop of ice cream or whatever. But the things that we tell ourselves, and it's like a, almost like a soul promise, right? Because nobody else is affected by this and nobody else is holding us accountable. But then I don't get up in the morning or, you know, back in the day, I would keep drinking. And it's like, it's kind of chipping away at like who we are at a soulful level, right? And I think that's where I was so spiritually defunct and dead on the inside because I kept making these negotiations and promises with myself like, okay, well, tomorrow's going to be different. I'm not going to drink tomorrow. That's it. And then I get up, I'm like, maybe just a little bit. And we all know how that goes when it's just a little bit and blacked out. And I wake up the next morning like, oh, darn it. It happened again. Okay. Well, today's going to be different. Right. And it's like the groundhog's day of broken promises of maybe today's going to, and it wasn't. But the only person that was really affected by it was the fact that I was letting myself down over and over and over and over again. What did it look like leading up to going to rehab? I was in a relationship. He came from an alcoholic family. Right. And so, and that was part of my story too. I would never have the self confidence or self love to feel okay by myself. And so I would find boyfriends that I'm like, you know, well, it, as long as somebody loves me, then I'm okay. And it didn't really matter if they were 
kind or talked to. And so I tended to find ones that probably weren't very healthy. And so I found myself in this relationship with someone who came from an alcoholic family who had a lot of trauma as we all do. And so it just wasn't, it wasn't really good. And so I had left, I'd moved out and I'd lived in Washington, DC. So at 28, I was taking a commuter train to Washington, DC. I was drinking coffee on the way in and drinking wine in the tumbler on the way out, followed by two bottles of wine every night. So are you drinking like right when you get off work? Yes. Are you drinking at work? No. No, not at work though. Okay. That, that was a boundary was, I never. Okay. That was okay. Cause a lot of the time that's a huge boundary. Like, well, I'm still employed and I don't drink at work and therefore everything is fine. hundred percent. That is exactly my thought process. Like I'm not sneaking drinks at work and I'm not drinking before work yet. I was doing this blacking out. So I drink those little tiny bottles of wine that you can buy in a four pack. And I would go in the bathroom and I'd pour those into my tumbler um, and drink that on the way, the train home. When you went into the bathroom to pour the alcohol into your tumbler, in your mind, were you like, you know, when you're sneaking something and you're like, I'm totally sneaking this? Or were you like, yeah, I just got to like do it in the bathroom. So if if I spill, you know, I'm in the- Kind of in the middle. I was like, I'm just going to do it in the bathroom because everybody else on the train was drinking out of Dixie cups. Like little, they would sip it. It was a happy hour. It was a cocktail. Oh, oh so people were so it was sorry. normal on the train. Yes, normal but to people drink on would, the train. I missed that memo. Okay, right. I didn't. So I didn't have jobs, a, so <laughs> it was not employable. <laughs> Those weren't the type of trains I was on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so so. Oh gosh, I love you. Yes. Okay, so on the commuter train, <laughs> no Dixie cups. <laughs> this commuter train, you could buy these buy these bottles of okay. But it's a liquor store next to the train platform. You go in there, you could buy your alcohol. They sold these individual bottles, and most people would get one bottle, and then they'd give you a little cup that went with it. And they would sip it, and they would talk to their friends. I'm like, don't have time for that. I do not want to sip it. I'm not. I don't drink like a lady. So I would take my bottles. And I would go into the bathroom okay. at the Union Station and I would pour them into a coffee cup. So you're allowed to drink on there. And I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, well, I don't drink like them. I guess cognitively I understood if, I, if I'm if i shooting wine, it's going to look bad. So like, I'm just going to drink it out of a cup. And yeah. then I have like red lips and teeth. Yeah. And I'd get home and then I would drink two bottles of wine. And then sometimes there was a bar down the street. I'd walk there. That was my, It was Groundhog's Day. I'd fall a lot because I was blacked out and I'd wake up with cuts and bruises and scrapes. And, and so at 28, you know, that whole thing about, well, I'm going to drink because I'm not married or kids or all those things. Right. Like at 28, it was like all the, my life, I'm old. Life right, is right. passing me by. Put me out I'm to like, pasture. put me out to pasture. In this, this relationship, he was triggered by a lot of the things I was doing as rightfully so coming from a family of, you know, addicts. And, and I, had this like victim mentality though too when I was drinking. I was like, this is my lot in life. I can't leave. This is just where I'm supposed to be like Eeyore. And I tried to get sober a couple of times in that relationship because he'd come from that. And he's like, I know this is what it looks like. Like, Let's see this therapist. And it just, I just kept doing this dance of in and out, in and out because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to look at my, my shit. I wasn't ready to see. I was just wasn't ready. And so at 29, I moved into Washington, DC. I was living by myself for the first time without like a roommate. I look back, I'm like, God, that was like a year. It was 10 days I was living by myself. Stop it right now. Before I went to rehab. Oh my God. Stop it right now. You're like, that was a year. Oh my gosh. That was the longest period ever. I I look at the calendar. I'm like, the most savage 10 days of your life. There's a lot packed into those days. So that's what my life was like, completely unmanageable. I still didn't think I was powerless over alcohol because that voice told me like, I can quit anytime I want. I just don't want to. And at this point, where is your brother in his like fame and all of that? Um, it was right before Beijing. So it's 07. So he's he's internationally known. 08 was the eight gold medals. And so... I think it's six six gold and two bronze in 04, but not the eight and eight, not the eight and one. Okay. The eight did one time. Is any of that affecting you at all in this experience? No, I'm just going along for the party. I mean, it's amazing. We're traveling and doing these great things and it's important. I am important now. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. Also <laughs> like 
single looking to mingle at the Olympic Village. Let's go. That's I like to think that's what I do, but also I, I tried to hitchhike to another city and I ended up in the same town. So I talk a big game, but I couldn't get very far. I talk a big game too. I was I was talking to someone. I was like, and this and that. And now, you know, then I'd be doing this in the bathroom and that and and they said something, they comment and they were like, that sounds like a reoccurring story in a lot. Did you do that a lot? I'm like, I never did it. I just sound. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. See, I, I, I like to think I'm the opposite. Like I did all the really gross things. And so I like to think that I could have been like a fancy alcoholic and gone out to parties and bars and <laughs> like still been alcoholic, but like at least blacked out with like people who had a W2. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't, <laughs> that was not anybody who maybe like more than one vehicle amongst the 10 of my friend, you know, like just things like that. But there was, it was, I mean, the grass is always greener. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I like, yeah. I'm like, man, that sounds fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were doing sounds fun. <laughs> Sometimes it was, but I aspired to be fancy, but it just never happened for me. So the difference is, and we should talk about this. The difference is though, I got sober at 19. I had done jack shit. I had jack shit. Like there was nothing about me going on. So the only thing I had going for me was that I had stopped, that I had gotten sober, right? So it was it was the only identity I had. And so I, and also everybody knew about my drug addiction and my alcoholism. And so everybody who ever interacted with me as a teenager, every parent, every you know kid, every sibling, every teacher, every... So there wasn't any sense of me hiding being in recovery because that was the only good thing I had going for me. So I might as well just, you know, get that out, that part out there. Plant that flag. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so I never had the opportunity to be anonymous in the way that I think a lot of people do have the opportunity to be anonymous. And so getting sober at 19 and then basically living and... I ended up working in in recovery in the recovery field which I was not my goal. I was, you know, on my way to law school and not doing all this other stuff and then I, you know, switched switched career paths so I did end up working in recovery but I have never experienced the opportunity to be really anonymous. This gets into you didn't start sharing your story until you were 15 years sober. And so you only experienced anonymity. Talk to me about, okay, I need to be anonymous with this. And then deciding like, I'm done. Like, this is me. So talk about, I think women go through a lot of transitions in their lives, right? So whether it's getting sober, having a child, having a child leave the home, changing your career, like shedding the layer of skin, right? Like a caterpillar into a butterfly or shedding layers, whatever the analogy is. And so when I first got sober, nobody I knew well, that's not true. A girl I went to high school with was one who kind of helped inform my decision, you know, meaning I used to drink and use with her and she was, and she said, um, this is at the age of my space. And so she had no drink and no smoke on the, her page. And I was like, I don't understand. We drank and smoked together all the time. And so she said, you know, I've been sober for five years. And what I realized is my elevator was going down you can get up, you can get off at any time. And something about that really stuck with me. And so, you know, when I got sober, other than my friend Adrian, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know about treatment. I didn't know that inpatient outpatient was a thing. I didn't know that there were multiple meetings every day. I didn't know there were different ways. I had no idea. And so I was walking into this with one getting sober and I was extremely raw. I had no idea, like Bambi. And so I got sober and I didn't tell anybody. Like nobody at work knew. I mean, my family knew. I told and because they could see it, but I wasn't you sure. You put yourself in treatment. I put myself in treatment. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, I checked in. I wasn't sure it was going to stick. Right. So I don't want to tell people either. Mm, so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, you know? And so, but then I started really surrounding myself with other women who, and look, I did not like women oh, because I was a shitty human, right? I was backstabbing, jealous, nasty, mean bitch, right? All the time or not. I mean, 99% of the time. I assumed that everybody else was like me. And so when I went into, you know, met other women who were, I was like, I was very guarded, did not want to spend time with them. But I eventually found a group of women who I really enjoyed and I liked, and that helped. But I still wasn't ready to share. And I would just say things, you know, about drinking. I still felt and carried a lot of shame around it, right? Because I hadn't fully embraced. And so I straddled this line between, well, I'm just really healthy. You know, I'm certified in yoga. I'm certified in Pilates. I did an Ironman. I was a division one swimmer. Like, I'm healthy. I was a vegan for a long time, you know? And so I could kind of mask 
I was perfect, right? You know, this is why I, I they said they're like, what? I'm like, well, I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit smoking cigarettes. I'm going to quit diet. I was drinking Diet Coke, like beer. I mean, like wine. I'm just drinking it. So I'm going to quit caffeine, quit real sugar, fake sugar. I'm going to, you know, be a vegan and I'm going to run a marathon and then I'm going to be perfect. Like, this is my time to be perfect. I cannot wait. And they're like, just don't drink today. <laughs> All you have to do. <laughs> they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Just how about you just start with don't. <laughs> I love it. They're like, cool, just don't drink. And I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you for cutting me, you know, cutting me some slack. You know, as I went through at five years, I was diagnosed with severe depression. At 10 years, my son was born. At 15 years, I'd ended a, a marriage. And within that relationship, I was repeatedly told that being an addict is shameful. Right. And so I'm hearing this from a partner saying, like, you don't tell anybody these things. You oh, keep that secret. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And so I already had some shame around it. And then I'm also being told, yeah, it's shameful. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Don't talk about your mental health. Don't talk about your... I'm like, okay, God. At the end of that, the end of that relationship, I'd shed this layer of skin. I'd, I'd, I'd left an incredibly toxic relationship with my laptop, my clothes, and my son walked out. And so you know, when I left that, someone asked me, he's like, do you want to be in? I'm like, I don't think I'm ready to share my story. And in that moment, I was like, you know what? This feels really empowering to share my story of recovery because if I still feel shame, and this was after COVID when the number, you know, heavy drinking among women is rapidly catching up to men. 300% increase in heavy drinking among women with children at home during COVID. I mean, these numbers are staggering and they don't lie. So all this stuff is going on. I'm like, there have to be more women coming out of COVID inactive addiction than ever before. And so if they're feeling shame and they don't know where to turn for help, I don't have the luxury of staying silent anymore at 15 years with a little bit of, you know, of a platform. And so if people can say, I had no idea, you seem normal, like you have a job and you come from a good family. And all I wanted was one, like one woman to see a commonality or, and get sober. Maybe that was it because I know how alone I felt when I got sober. Right. And then one podcast went to another to 12 to 15, like, and then all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is really informing my decision to continuously to speak out about it. And since that happened, I also changed my career. You know, I was working in PR and I still have a firm, I still have my own agency, but went through a program and become a holistic coach to start working with women going through transition, like whether it's sobriety or divorce or children leaving their home or all of these things, because now I'm on my soapbox. Like we just think we can keep doing it. Put put it on my tray. I'll I'll carry it. I don't need help, right? Like I got it. I got it. And I think the same thing, in my opinion, when it comes to addiction and recovery, I got it. It is going to work itself out. Or well, she drinks as much as I do, and she doesn't. She seems to be fine. So I'm just going to keep going. You know, whatever those things are. And I think there just need to be a little bit more support. And if I can lend an ear and a voice to women in transition or struggling and lend an ear to women who need help. And if we all did that for one or two people, think of how different the world would be. It's like a pie in the sky thing, but I think it can be, I think it's possible. It's definitely possible and it's getting more and more possible. And I think the thing that people also don't see, understandably, is like I go to these meetings where I talk to corporations about what benefits, what substance use disorder, what mental health benefits that they're going to provide for their employees. Companies that have a million employees, companies that have 500,000 employees, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, a lot of people are affected by these decisions because people aren't speaking out who have a lot of recovery. These people who are making the decisions, these corporations that are funding the healthcare behind it. The people making a lot of those decisions around those benefits don't know anything about alcoholism, don't know anybody who in long-term recovery, and not because not they're bad people. It's just they don't know, and they're the ones making these decisions. So what we have are an inordinate amount of people whose benefits don't cover this life-saving treatment simply because people are not willing to come out and talk about it and be open about it. And I know that's like a weird segue in terms of like getting out there and talking to people, but the corporate structure informs the insurance coverage and the insurance coverage informs the standard of care. You know, so it does matter. It does matter. And it is, it matters in ways that I don't think a lot of people know about. And so I get really fired up my soapbox. I get really fired up because I know a ton of people who have really long-term sobriety, who are amazing. They're in leadership they're in Congress. They're, I mean, I've seen, I'm sure, you, oh, I know, I know you have, you're in, you're in DC. I've been to meetings in Georgetown and those areas. And you see these really powerful people who are 
anonymous. And it's so hard because they have the power of influence. And and that really matters. Well, I think, you know, we can't change that policy without changing perception. And we can't change perception without changing stigma. And we can't change the stigma without more people talking about it. Right. And so you're spot on. And that was my feeling about it. Like if right people are like, no way you can't be in it. I'm like, but I am. And there are a lot more people that are like, me that are struggling and silent that can't get help or are, you know, anonymously, you know, recovering in, in, in quiet because of the stigma. Um, you know, even my mom, when I got, she recently said to me and she said, and I'm paraphrasing, but she said, I'm sorry, I wasn't more supportive when you got sober. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And so I didn't say anything. And I think that's part of it too. Like some people, there's a judgment, like this is a willpower thing. So I'm glad, you know, you come out of treatment and they're like, thank goodness you finally got your shit together. If someone goes through chemotherapy and has cancer, we make meal trains for them and we take them flowers and we ask them what they need from emotional support. And it's it's the same thing. And people that come out of treatment and recovery like really need support. Like, how can I help? And my mom's like, I just didn't know what to do or what to say. She's like, because we don't know anybody. And this goes to what you're saying. We don't know anybody before you. <laughs> Yeah, Hillary. which is also like not true, but right. nobody uh, who, who got well who got sober, right? Not who not who wasn't drinking, but who got sober. We are never going to change these policies or the perception if more people aren't lending their voice to this. And if they're not comfortable, like I would, you know, never encourage someone to go outside of what they're comfortable with. But you're right. I know that you've been going out and talking to organizations and 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 podcasts about your recovery. What is your hope? As you move forward, and I and believe that you work in PR al- along with the coaching, is that did I get that right? Yes, and so that's my you know I've been in communications my entire adult life in some capacity, and then I just launched this coaching because I wanted to be able to support women in a more impactful way as well. And I worked with a coach when I was transitioning out of my relationship, and it was the most powerful thing I did to help me find my voice because for a really long time I'd stuffed my intuition like intuition and that inner voice down and I'd let it be I allowed it to be silenced and with working with the coach I was able to uncover it and also realize that I'm not wrong I was just in the wrong room you know my voice isn't wrong and how I feel isn't wrong it was just the people I was around and so finding my voice and my purpose allowed me to step into the right room but when I speak to organizations or I talk my hope is that people will look at addiction and know that it's not the old man living under a bridge, drinking out of the brown paper bag, that it can look different and that's okay. And that whole idea of decrease, the more people that are talking about it and the more I can lend my voice to that space of decreasing the stigma, the more the stigmas decrease, the more policies will change and the more people we can affect at an institutional level. I mean, people are going to get treatment and people are going to 12 steps, but there's so much more that can be done with changing policies and bringing it in to corporations, like you're saying, and giving support in that way, whether it's through insurance or group meetings in large companies. I mean, there's so many things that can be done. And I just want to lend my voice to that and show people that and recovery is possible. Well, you're wonderful, Hillary. I've had so much fun. Thank you for being here. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you about coaching or, or any other opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. It's hillaryphelps.com with one L. And then um, Instagram, it's hillaryphelps underscore. And I try to answer everything. I've said this. I try to answer all my DMs and, and, and you know, sometimes it takes a couple of days. And if I don't get to it right away, I will. <laughs> but I really try to connect with as many people as possible. And if I don't have an answer, I try to find one or find somebody that would have the answer for them because I think the more people we can help that ripple effect that goes out to helping more people and healing more people and more people getting sober and helping others is just really powerful. Love that. Well, thank you so, so much. I, I loved our conversation and uh, everyone go check out Hillary with one L Phelps, P-A-E-L-P-S.com. <laughs> thank you. I really think we should call this show Ashley Finds New Friends. I assume that was the point of the show. I tell them that before you talk to them. Oh, okay, good. So I give them your number, your home address. I have like a little sheet which just has like all your favorite things, like what kinds of desserts you like, you know, like what do you want to get on your birthday? Do you like chocolate? I think if you could be like Ashley's favorite dessert and then you could put colon dessert. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't want the ones with the dairy in it. 
Oh, good point. I mean, if it's good enough, she might be willing to put up with, with the pain. It's not It's not your normal just like diarrhea situation. Uh, After uh, I was pregnant with the twins, I became extremely allergic to dairy. And I the first thing that happens is I start to throw up. If it were just a lower level evacuation situation, I would power through, okay? Is there any world in which you would like, let's say you're in, fa- in false and there's like some dessert. This is like a life-changing thing, like, but it's got some dairy in it. Probably not. Like that's how bad it is. Wow. Okay. Like I've smoked through pneumonia. Like, you know what I mean? I like I <laughs> allegedly, if you're allegedly. part of an insurance company, allegedly. Allegedly. Through, I've allegedly smoked through pneumonia, but it's such a horrific experience that I can't imagine like the taste being because like the taste is like a second and then it's projectile. <laughs> it's I'm vomiting for hours. Oh, My no. stomach is distended. Oh. The diarrhea comes the next day and it's not normal diarrhea. It's too much, right? This sounds like sort of like biblical plagues. It is. It, it, do frogs come on the on the third day or what what happened? Dude It's biblical. Like it is biblical. Honestly, I don't know. It is wild for someone who loved and ate dairy before that. It is a wild Mr. Toad's wild ride through the rings of hell. There's a lot of other things out there. We're not supposed to be eating milk anymore as adults. Other animals don't do it. My mom tried to get me to try ghee and I was like, nope. Not risking it. Is ghee supposed to be okay for people who can't do dairy? My mom really struggles with my dietary <laughs> restrictions. <laughs> she really, really struggles with my dietary restrictions. My mom. Well, you can have butter, right? You can have butter. Yeah, you yeah, can I'm have like, butter. No, that's dairy, mom. She's like, but it's clarified. <laughs> it's clarified butter. Skim milk. It's just basically water at that point, right? It's fine. Yeah, skim milk. It's, no, my mom. With my mom. Sorry, mom. My mom goes. I think you should find allergy shots to get so that you can eat dairy. I was like, I am not. <laughs> I am not going to do that. I would. Yeah, but the thing is, it stops you from eating all sorts of nonsense plenty of the time. Mm, yeah, you're saying having the allergy is helpful. There is a positive side to it. Yes. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I can see that. There is a positive side because you go places and there's like an entire bakery display of food and you're like, well, I mean, I would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If I weren't like an extreme human being, then maybe, maybe, and I was like, moderacy is life, then maybe I would pursue these injections, but it just feels like, nah. But you can have cheese curds though, right? Because they're fried. God, you are my mother. How did we get there? You know, it's always just kind of a fever dream. (laughs) I know, but like, you know, whenever we start talking, I'm always like, we talked about friends. Oh, a list of my favorite things. And then we said dessert. Ah, okay, great. So on that same list, it will say allergies. (laughs) Dairy likes dogs. Wait, are you making me like a dating, a friend dating profile? Friend finder. Yeah. Is friend finder really for finding friends? I don't think so. No? I don't think so. I think maybe friends with benefits. You know how people talk about platonic friendships, right? Like it's it's like based on Plato, right? Isn't that the idea? And wasn't he like having relationships with boys? All the Greeks were. All the Greeks were having sex with prepubescent boys. So then why... Are we saying this is a platonic relationship? Okay, let's see. Platonic. Oh, they're named after Plato and reference his writings on different types of love. The term platonic was initially used to mock non-sexual relationships as it was considered ridiculous to separate love and sex. But eventually this connotation faded away, leaving us with today's notion of close friendships. Wow. So he was like, well, why would I love someone and not have sex with them? Is that his Plato's thing? Yeah, literally. He said the term platonic was initially used to mock non-sexual relationships as it was considered ridiculous to separate love and sex. But eventually this connotation faded away, leaving us with today's notion of close friendships. According to the ancient philosopher Plato, for whom the concept is named, this bond is a type of love experienced when we identify positive qualities we feel complete us within another person. I think we're supposed to come to the relationship complete already. (laughs) 
I'm losing my mind a little bit at a time. <laughs> I was going to talk about Hillary, but I think we got to end it right there. That's kind of a season closer, if you will. So, okay, here's the other thing. In the nature versus nurture conversation, where is the Phelps family on that scale? Can we figure that out? What bullshit? You know, can you imagine? Poor Hillary. I'm only the best in the nation. Best in the nation? That's bullshit. As the oldest sibling, I would feel very dethroned and need to drink a lot. I would drink a lot. If I were the best in the nation at anything, I would feel incredible. But then your other siblings are the best in the world. How terrible. Absolutely terrible. How do you even have a sibling fight, like a normal sibling fight? I would just be like, I just want you to know, no matter what everybody thinks about you and like how many medals you have and blah, 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 I still know that you're not those things. I still know that when you leave the bathroom, it smells terrible. Okay. When you were two, <laughs> you used to shit your pants. So I felt very grateful that my parents didn't encourage us all in the same arena. Do you think for your parents, did they have like a little testing that happened early on sort of to see where your abilities lied? No, there was no strategy. Because you did fall into little categories pretty cleanly. I mean, I will say both my sisters are very, very smart and very academic. And of course, both of them. Yes. That was literally my next comment was the through line is everybody's smart. And all of us could have, there's a world in which all of us could have trained ourselves physically, athletically to be the top at whatever our abilities were. But I think that we just gravitated towards all the, I have no artistic like ability. So that's the top of my abilities there is real rough. So Marina really took the cake on that one. But I think that ultimately it was like the combination of what we liked and what we were into and who we were as people. And and I can totally see as a parent because the twins, I'm like, can't they just do the same fucking sport so that we can like yeah. drop them? You know, like that would have been much easier. So I could see being like, everybody's getting in the pool. Plus they're tired after swimming, which is really nice. They're so tired. I don't know, especially for Hillary as a perfectionist. I think the depression piece of like coming at a time where they don't really know how to help. And then alcohol being this equalizer and this liquid courage and sounded like there was some anxiety stuff going on and it helped all those things. And I suspect that the other siblings were getting their needs met from their achievements in sports. And that can happen. That can, where like you're getting all those needs met and it's enough that you're willing to forego these other things. If you're not getting your needs met, in that thing, like if you don't feel like it's really, you know, in her case, if she doesn't feel like she's the best, regardless of the fact that she is the best in the country, if she's got someone at home, then maybe that's not meeting that need of like really feeling celebrated in an area. So then she goes and gets this other need met. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that really also fascinating part is her spouse causing her to keep quiet about her recovery for so long. And I that I hadn't considered that. I was like, oh, it's the outside influences. It's the this, it's the that. And like, oh, well, if your spouse doesn't really want you to talk about it because they're embarrassed, well, that's their outside influences or whatever. But that makes sense. And you're not going to, you don't want to embarrass them. I wonder how many people that's part of it. Like they would normally talk about it, but there's a sense of embarrassment coming or shame coming from the partner and it's their shit yeah if they're being like no 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 we don't we don't talk about this stuff then like of course if that's the message you're getting every day it's already feels kind of scary to go out and talk about it. I'm thankful that after 15 years, Hillary decided to come out and tell her story. The more people that tell their stories, the more those people who are suffering in silence, the more likely they are to get help, which is what this is all about. We are rooting for you this week as we always are. This was our last guest episode of the season. We hope you enjoyed it. You matter so much to us, so much. Every time we hear a single little word from you, anytime that we get feedback from you, anytime that we find out that it's more than just us speaking into microphones to each other. I'm very thankful for you. I really am picturing you when we make this and I'm giving you everything I have when we do because I want to give you something great that makes you feel hopeful. I hope that you have a great holidays. I hope you have a great New Year's. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with? this week. Well, as always, I'd like to echo your sentiments. We'd love hearing from you and being reminded that someone is listening 
other than us talking to ourselves, which sometimes it feels like. And it is amazing to hear your stories and of how these stories affect your life. I can't believe this is season five. We're wrapping up season five. That's five years this podcast has been going and what a wild ride. So much has changed. So much has stayed the same. And thank you for being a part of that. Whether you joined us for just this podcast or you've been here the whole time or anything in between, grateful to have you. Hope that you are having wonderful holidays, however you celebrate them with your given family or your family of choice. Please know you can always reach out to us. We do answer all of our emails and Look out, Hazar. Season five wrap up is just around the corner. We'll see you there. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.